Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20 with Pastor John King. Uh, today we're going to be uh, finishing up, or, or excuse me, we're going to be right in the middle of Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. So if you would, uh, while we're finding our place there or you're pulling it up on your phone, uh, let's just talk a little bit about last week. One of the main things I hope we learned, we took away from last week was God's salvation goes far deeper than simply enabling you and I to escape judgment. The understanding we need to know is that when God rescues us, he draws us into an intimate and personal relationship. It's a loving relationship with him. It's like no other type of philosophy or religion whatsoever. Uh, that, can, that God himself became a man and came and, and you know, we can relate to him. He, he lived a, an earthly life. We saw that he was tempted, but he never sinned. But he also did the most wonderful thing, and that's he paid the price for you and I on the cross at Calvary. And then he defeated death. He defeated Satan and he defeated death for, through resurrection, which we're promised. When we finished last week, I meant to say this last week, there's a, a, something, a good example for you and I uh, when it talks about relationship and how a person can think they have a relationship with God and yet, you know, not have a true relationship. Uh, David Guzik talked about that. He, he said... He says this, at the end of this section, from we talked about last week, Paul set a choice before the Galatians and before us. We can have a living and a free relationship with God as a loving father based on what Jesus did for us and who we are in him. We, we just said that, you know, who we are, what he's done. Or we can try to please God by our best efforts, keeping the rules, living in bondage as slaves and not sons. Remember, we were all adopted as sons and daughters into his kingdom. And because of that, Paul said, living that way, trying to live in your own strength, makes the whole gospel in vain. It's a waste of time. A good example of this is John Wesley. You know, John Wesley was the founder with his brother of the Methodist movement. It was a great movement of God back in the 1800s. But before his conversion, John Wesley, you may know this, he was a son of a clergyman, but he was also a clergyman himself. He was orthodox in belief, he was faithful in morality, and he was full of good works. He did ministry in prisons, sweatshops, and slums. He gave food, clothing, and education to the slum children. He observed both Saturday and Sunday as a Sabbath. He sailed from England to American colonies as a missionary. He studied his Bible, he prayed, he fasted, and he gave regularly. Yet all the time, he was bound in the chains of his own religious efforts. Because he trusted in what he could do to make himself right before God. Instead of trusting in what Jesus had done. Now later, he came to trust in Christ and in Christ only for salvation. That's a quote from John Wesley. And he came to an inner assurance that he was now forgiven, saved, and a son of God. Looking back on all his religious activity tr before he was truly saved, he said, I had even the faith of a servant, though not of a son. And that's why it's so important for you and I to have a good grasp and a good understanding. Even if our emotions don't cooperate, and they don't always do, 
We need to have a good grasp and understanding that we are his sons and daughters. We've been adopted. We're no longer orphans. Amen? Well, this week, Paul gives the Galatians a reminder of how it was when he was with them. Kind of like a, a remember when things were different kind of thing. When he compares their present state, their backslidden into legalism, for Paul, it's very perplexing. And he wished he could see them in person in order to clear things up. Sometimes face-to-face -face is the only way. Paul, of course, now we're going to see he's actually softening his tone. He's now expressing himself as more of a loving and caring pastor than that of a doctrinally correct theologian, which he was. He was a great apostle. But he also had a, he didn't have a heart of stone towards the people. He loved them, and he was a loving and caring pastor. So let's read our passage, Galatians 4, 12 through 20. Paul writes, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in good things always, and not only while I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have my doubts about you. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we don't want to have doubts. We may have, we may have questions, we may be in difficult places in our lives, but Lord, we do not want to have a doubt as to who we are in you and how you express your love to us in so many wonderful and glorious ways. And so our understanding is not just for our own edification, it's personal, but it's also to bring glory to you. It's so that we can stand on a firm foundation and witness of you. It's so that we can be the people, the men and the women that you have decided we need to be. You have a path set out for each and every person in this life. May we run it with grace and love, and courage, and faith. Build us up now, Lord, through your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, as we said, Paul starts out in verse 12 with a very humble appeal. You know, he's coming to them very soft, very humble, compared to how he has, you know, he was calling them foolish, he was called, saying, who bewitched you? Now he's saying, brethren, brothers. That's a good thing. You know, he still sees them as children of God. He still sees them as believers. He's not speaking to them as though they were unbelievers. And he says, I urge you to become like me. I urge you, mean, literally, I beseech you or I desire. You know, I'm a strong, he has a strong emotion here. He says to become like me. Well, well how? And why, why would we want to become like Paul? Why would they want to become like Paul? Well, it wasn't his style, you know, it wasn't his mannerisms. He wasn't trying to clone himself by personality. 
It was in the sense that Paul had been made free from the law and now lived under grace. That's what he's saying. For I became like you. He's comparing the fact that the Gentiles, most of the church was Gentiles in Galatia. He's comparing the fact that, you know, though he was under the legal bondage of the law as a Pharisee, you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he's been set free. Like they, they didn't even realize they were free from the law until he informed them of that. He says, I became like you. He was not under the law, no longer, even though he was indeed a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, coming to Christ requires change. And it's the, the work that he does in us that changes us. But when we resist it and try to have our own way, we need to be, you know, kind of brought back to understanding. And that's what Paul's doing. He was indeed a Hebrew of Hebrews, Philippians 3, 4 through 9. If you were wanting to boast, you know, uh, you could, Paul would say, if you want to boast, he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is the law, blameless. But in verse 7 he says, But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and now count all my good works as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You know, that's a true understanding that he is a child of God. He knows that anything he did before, as, as wonderful as it could be in the eyes of man, especially in the religious community of that day, which was quite the accomplishment, he didn't really have things on him. You know, everybody has a past, but Paul apparently kept his sin well hidden. He was very self-righteous. And all of that is, is like rubbish. It's, it's, it's cheap trash compared to the knowledge of knowing that he's a child of God. Simply that. Knowing that he's a child of God. That he's found in Christ Jesus. He says a strange thing at the end of this verse. He says, you have not injured me at all. Now to injure is obviously to wrong someone. And he says, you've not injured me at all. Now you can ask the question, a fair question, is that true, Paul? That they haven't injured you? Not in the present sense. Um, they had already turned away. They uh, turned away from his teachings. They'd sided with the Judaizers. They'd supported the malicious things that they spoke against him. Obviously, to draw someone to you like these, these false teachers were, you have to badmouth the person that you consider uh, that you're under their leadership. You know, and that's, uh, that's, we're going to talk more about that. But when Paul first came, what he's referring to is when he first arrived in Galatia and brought them the gospel, they didn't mistreat him. A lot of places he went, and even in the, the cities, he was mistreated, yes. Mistreated by the Jews, mistreated by the mobs. But when he planted that church in Galatia, when he came to them with the gospel, 
They did not mistreat him. So he says, you have not injured me at all. That's what he most likely means in that case. Now, before we go any further, let's, let's just kind of stop and look at a couple of things about Paul. First of his character and then his commitment. Notice Paul's humility. Notice his humility. In his loving response to the offenses of the Judaizers and the Galatians who had slandered the gospel and Paul, they slandered what he had been preaching. We know that because Galatians 1, 9, and 10, we, we read, it says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul's character is on display when he comes. But also his commitment. Even though Paul was humble and willing to beg the Galatians to return, urge them, he would not compromise the gospel or his calling. In the same sense, you and I, you know, if you want to see an application of this in our day, you and I need to be willing to reach out to our community. Now, as we will notice today, Paul's letter at this point is kind of like an outreach. Uh, because he's having to renew the truth of the gospel all over again, as he explains. And so as you and I reach out, we need to be humble, yet firm in our faith. You know, as we learned from the Potato Festival, those of you who came out, fishing for souls does not always take place when the weather is good, right? It was blazing hot out that first day, and the next day as well. And so... Fishing for souls in a public outreach is not always cooperative in the weather, and nor are the fish always biting. But that doesn't change our commitment to reach out to our community. So how do you win somebody to the gospel without compromising the truth? You know, we talked a couple weeks ago about, about how Jesus, you can use the law for evangelism. That's a method. And, and generally, everybody has to realize they're a sinner, whether you use the Ten Commandments or not. Everybody has to realize they're in need. They have to understand their need to receive Christ. As I said, we, you, know, you can't just say, oh, and by the way, Jesus loves you. Isn't that wonderful? And they say, that's wonderful for you. you know, that's the kind of response we get when somebody is confident and prideful in their situation in life. And there's a lot of people like that walking around. Many of us were like that before we came to know the Lord. We also see that Paul, like Jesus, served all men. And that's a key understanding. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, we see Paul's method for evangelism. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more, and to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, the Gentiles, as without the law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. So Paul has made himself available to serve all men with the gospel. 
He says at the end of verse 22, I have become all things to all men that I might make by all means save some. So that I might by all means save some. Realizing that not everybody's going to receive the gospel message. But he says, now I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. You know, it's something we want to share in together, this work of evangelism. But notice what Paul did. We're talking about our freedom and our identity in Christ, but we also have to be responsible with our freedom. Paul restricted his freedom in Christ himself. He restricted it in order to serve those who needed to hear the gospel. Paul would use several means to reach the people, but he never did it at the expense of a watered-down gospel. You're not going to get a bunch of business consultants into Paul's uh, office, if he had one, and teach him how to bring people in through worldly methods. Here at Calvary Chapel, we schedule special outreach days on our calendar. We have our Love Life prayer walks. We have our pota the Potato Festival. We participate in the local feeding ministry, Souls Ministry. That's an outreach. We have our VBS, our Hallelujah Harvest. We have a Christmas parade. We have a lot of opportunities. And of course, you know, you'll see, you don't get nervous. Like, I'm really worried that everybody's going to be at every single event. Let the Lord lead you on that. But I would like to say that we try to make that available to you here at our church, your church. We also practice personal evangelism. We all do it. We have prayer meetings. We have home fellowship. Uh, you know, we have the kids' ministry, um, child evangelism fellowship, an active ministry that goes on here at the school that Trish and, and uh, Grace are very active in and others. And so we have these things. And participation in these activities, what does it do? Well, it requires that you and I set aside time, a time commitment. And who's got the time to do anything these days, right? Why? To make us better fishers of men as we serve and seek to evangelize our community, the people around us. But we want to do it with humility, with grace, and with truth. And that's what Paul's going to talk about today, more so as we get to the passage today. Now that's the external stuff we're talking about, but what about the internal? You know, many of you here have, likewise, you've restricted your freedom and volunteered to serve in our body. You've committed yourself to serving in fellowship with the body of Christ. You know, we live in a world today where so many people are dropping out of churches left and right. For whatever reason, you know, church hurt, go, whatever, there's different reasons. Some, are obviously, for health reasons, very legitimate. We're not trying to, you know, we're not that brutal. <laughs> but, you know, people are stepping. We have this whole society of, they call them the nuns. You know, they have no affiliation, they have nothing going on. But you have committed yourself. You've committed yourself to serving the body of Christ. And that's something to keep always in the back of your mind when serving is not always rewarded with enough thank yous or seemingly appreciation. Because you're not serving the leadership here at the church. And even though you've made a commitment to the body of Christ, you're ultimately serving Jesus. You've set aside that time. And he's called you to do a certain work for whatever reason and for whatever season he's called you to do it in. Because of your love for Jesus, his bride, as the Holy Spirit guides and directs us, this service to us is an outworking of love that we share because of what he's done, by placing us into his family, adopting us 
as his sons and daughters. Amen? Next, in verses 13 through 16, Paul brings them a truthful reminder. A truthful reminder. Because you know what, folks? Ministry can be very messy. <laughs> it can be very messy. And he says in verse 13, You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. What's he talking about here? Apparently, Paul arrived in Galatia in very rough shape physically. We don't know what his particular illness was, but some speculate that he may have had malaria and that he was leaving the cities to the higher elevations to escape malaria, which was rampant at that time in that region. Some speculate that he may have had a form of epilepsy. And an eye disease is another one very popular about Paul's eyesight. And we're actually going to see a little bit about that. It's hard not to speculate by the clues that Paul gives. But the bottom line is we do not know what his physical infirmity was. He says, I preached the gospel to you at first. Uh, preaching the gospel, euangelizo, that's to proclaim glad tidings, to instruct men concerning the things that pertain to Christian salvation. That's what that means. But notice it was despite his physical problems. You know, this illness, whatever it was that he had, didn't stop Paul from preaching the gospel. And he goes a little further. He says in 14, And my trial which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. You know, he recalls their attitude towards them. He's looking back at the good old days, if you will, in their relationship. My trial, what's he talking about? Because Paul was sick and needed some form of attention. And it presented a burden on the Galatians. And it tested their love and their hospitality. He says, you did not despise or reject. Or the NIV says, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Paul's illness may well have been something that we would perceive or think as needing lots of attention maybe nasty, maybe even gross to deal with. And yet they didn't despise him. They loved him. They loved on him. Remember we said ministry is messy. And they ministered to Paul, and he's recognizing that here in his letter. He says, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. I mean, you love me so much that you received me as though I were a messenger from heaven. And then he you know, jokingly says, even as Christ. They granted Paul access. Now, if they were cynical of God's work, they could have said, apostles don't get sick. <laughs> you know, They have more faith than that, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can never get sick. You're an apostle. They didn't do that. The love and care that Paul received caused him to give them the warmest regards for having received him with such compassion. He loves this church. But then he has a question. Now it's time for some truth to come out. He's given truth about how they treated him, but he, now he has a truthful question that's making him a little uncomfortable. He says, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? What then was the blessing you enjoyed? In other words, what changed? You know, what, what happened in our relationship? The blessing, it was, it was a beautiful thing. 
our relationship was, and you enjoyed it and I enjoyed it. So what happened? One writer says this, he says, the Galatian believers had counted themselves happy when they heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Had they lost that opinion? <laughs> I mean, you know, you call yourself a Christian, but what happened? And he says, for I bear witness. So Paul's willing to go on record to say, you know, I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, obviously, Paul's exaggerating. But he continues to express the degree of affectionate care that he received. Now, this, this verse gives people a lot of, um, uh, you know, smart people, theologians, scholars. It's another verse that supports the claim that Paul's unnamed afflictions are eye troubles. But again, it's a temptation we need to watch out for because we don't know. Adam Clark wrote this. He said, you had then the strongest affection for me, the way it was in the olden days. You loved God and you loved me for God's sake. And, we were, and you were ready to give me the most unequivocal proof of your love. Love is a decision. Love is based on our love and knowledge of God, not how we feel. In marriage, love is a decision, okay, no matter how we feel. And it's something that, you know, those of you that have been married for a long time know the importance of it. And he says in verse 16, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, that, that's the kind of question that will make you uncomfortable. You know, have I now become your enemy simply because I brought the truth to you? I brought the pure, true gospel to you that I received from Jesus Christ? And now we're enemies? Now when he says enemies, he's basically, they're, they're actively expressing hatred and opposition. It's a strong word. See, the Galatians had done a 180 compared to the way it was while Paul was with them. And he's basically saying, like we would say today, hey, what's up with that? Okay? What's up with that? That you have turned and now I am your enemy. Because I tell you the truth. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know, we've all been there. Losing a close relationship to strange or even unexplainable circumstances. Sometimes people disappear out of our lives and we have no idea why. Being alienated over strong or even seemingly casual disagreements. You know, we're, we're fickle, we're funny as people. Okay, we can, we can give off a, everything's fine on our face, but inside we can have a, just a, a miserable opposition to another. We're capable of that. You believe that, don't you? Even over seemingly casual disagreements. But what's even worse is to lose someone because they've chosen to exchange the truth for a lie. And in this case, truth about God, truth about your life in Christ. But somebody decides to exchange the truth for a lie, and that hurts. Warren Wiersbe says this, 
They had not lost the experience of salvation. They were still Christians. But they were losing the enjoyment of their salvation and finding satisfaction in their works instead. Sad to say, they did not realize their losses. They actually thought they were becoming better Christians by substituting law for grace and the religious deeds of the flesh for the fruit of the Spirit. Is your Christian life, is my Christian life, moving forward into liberty or backwards into bondage? You need to think carefully about that because it's, it's subtle sometimes. Another consideration for us, let's talk about our relationship. You and I, congregation, as I, me and myself as a pastor, or anybody who you know, occupies the pulpit and teaches God's word, Pastor John. Um, let's talk about it. Are, we, are you and I okay, going to weather the potential storms of conviction when I or anyone else seeks to preach all of God's truth? How are we going to do in that? You know, how's that relationship going to continue on? Because sometimes as a relationship goes along, you hit these stumbling blocks. Sometimes truth is spoken you don't want to hear. And that can cause problems. A man named Joseph Aldrich has some, I think, good advice for, for both myself and for you guys as well. He says, The dramatic shift from the Galatians' warm welcome to their cold rejection of Paul serves as a sober warning to both pastors and their churches. Pastors should not be so naive as to think that they will always receive a warm welcome if they consistently teach the truth. In fact, teaching the truth will always run the risk of alienating some people. Sometimes we don't know why people come and go. Sometimes they don't like what they're hearing. And you may never know that. And the people in the church need to be aware that their initial positive response to pastors who teach the truth will be severely tested when the truth cuts like a two-edged sword. During such a time of conviction, people need to maintain their loyalty to their pastors precisely because they have the courage to preach the truth even when it hurts. Now, again, we're talking about when your pastor, this pastor, preaches the truth. You need to, you need to check on everything I say, okay? Um, you know, I wasn't the brightest, uh, I wasn't the sharpest stick growing up. I did a lot of stupid things. And the Lord's done uh, a lot of work in my life, but he, trust me, you need to check on the things I say. Because if I'm not speaking truth, you need to be able to tell me that. If I'm mistaken, you need to be able to say, you know, hey, pastor, you know, you brought this up, you mentioned that. Can we talk about that? There needs to be a two-way street. It's not like, oh, I stand up here and say my thing and do what I say, and nobody can say anything or question. It's a two-way street. But when it is truth, remember that I did not write this Bible, okay? <laughs> and I'll say one more thing. Pastor, as a pastor, I am learning and have to learn continuously and be reminded that I sit under my own teaching, okay? I sit under this word of God just like you guys do. Amen? 
Now Paul here says he gives a direct warning. Verses 17 and 18. He's now going to talk about these Judaizers. He's going to talk about the ones, the false teachers that have come in and caused all this problem. And he's going to say this. They zealously court you, but for no good. Zealous means to have an intense desire for something. And the Judaizers had a desire for the people in that church. You know, they came in, they wanted to, they wanted to take them, and draw them to themselves, and it was an intense desire. They wanted to court you, or, or NIV says they wanted to win you over, sweet talk you, but for no good. He's explaining their method and their motive. Their method, yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. You know, it's all about our group, okay? It's, uh, we don't need to rub shoulders with outsiders because we got it all going on right here. You guys, you know, just stick together with us, under us. Give your allegiance to us. They want to exclude you. They want to shut them out. He w they want to keep them separated from any contact with Paul the Apostle or any of other apostles with Paul or any other teachers. That you, in order that you would now become zealous for them, that you would now have an intense desire for them as they have for you. You know, they want this mutual thing to happen. The false teacher's goal was to make the Galatians desire the attention they received in order to control them. In order to control them. <clears throat> there was an expression coined back in the early 70s that was used by members of, uh, you remember the Unification Church, Sun Myung Moon, Korea, big, huge church. Uh, maybe you don't recall, but this, there was also a group, it's now called the Family International, another cult, but it used to be called the Children of God. It was led by a guy named David Moses Berg. And it was during the hippie movement that he started. And they coined this expression called love bombing, how they would draw people in to their cult. And they would shower them with love and affection and they would just tell them how wonderful they were and they would try to say all the right things. And they would target teenagers, hippies, drug abusers, uh, users at the time. You know, people were traveling all over the country. There was a lot more hitchhiking going on back then. A lot more kids running away. And so they tried to love bomb them. Now, love bombing is an attempt. It's, it's uh, the psychological aspect of it. It's an attempt to influence a person by demonstrations of attention and affection. It can be used in different ways for either positive or negative purposes. Psychologists have identified love bombing as a possible part of a cycle of abuse and have warned against it. It has also been described as psychological manipulation in order to create a feeling of unity within a group against a society that's perceived as hostile. It's cults. I'm talking about cults. You know, our enemy, Satan, works along the same lines. He, he's the author of it. He's the author of lies and deception, seeking to play on your emotions and steer you away from the truth. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. We, were, we know the story. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And then the woman explains to him, You know, she knows the rules, which, which we can and cannot eat. But then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We see it even in Jesus' disciple, Peter. Deception. Luke twenty-two thirty-one, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So Paul's explaining the motivation, the abuse that they're under, these zealous Judaizers. And now he's going to address their behavior. Verse 18, he says, It is good to be zealous in good things always. Paul's making it clear that there is a proper place for this intense desire, this zeal. If it's for a good thing, what is good? Something that's ethically good, what's, what's right, what's noble, what's honorable in the sight of the Lord. And he says it's, it's good to be zealous in good things always. You should always be zealous about good things. Leon Morris says zeal is a necessary ingredient in the Christian life. No church that is apathetic is a live church. You've heard the term, you know, dead church and such. And no Christian who is apathetic, he claims, is a real Christian. So to be zealous is a good thing when it's for the right thing. One writer said this, the Galatian Christians were no doubt impressed by the zeal of the legalists. The legalists were so sincere, so passionate about their beliefs, and Paul agreed that it is good to be zealous. But zeal in the service of a lie is a dangerous thing. And so he says, also he says, look, it's good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I'm present with you. You know that? Look, how are we? How are we when we're by ourselves with Jesus? How are we when we leave our church environment, our fellowship environment. Well, sometimes we're not very good characters, are we? So it's good to be zealous in good things always, but under the right motivation, not just to look good or to virtue signal. And you see that happening all the time on this little, you know, flat screen that we have. I was listening to a guy named Frank Turek. He, you may know him. He's a an apolog Christian apologist. And he, somebody asked him about, you know, how do you deal with all the information that we, you know, the things that, what's, what's changed? Why are we in such a place as a society right now? And he says, well, from about 10 years ago, when we got our hands on these phones, when it was widespread smartphone usage, now you and I have instant access to everybody's opinion about everything. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing for you and I to have so much information. So we need to learn now in this, this new uh, era of digital world, we need to learn and we're learning how to manage our intake. Because it's not healthy to have everybody's opinion. But on the other hand, we have access to very good information much more so than we ever did. You know, at a time when you had to go to a library, you guys remember that? You had your library card and the stamps, and you wanted to go read a book, get, get access to an encyclopedia, stuff like that. Those, are those days are long gone, I know. <laughs> we still have libraries, though. Some of the things they do in those libraries, so it's not... Anyway, uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. We're not going there. 
So what does this passage remind you of? I mean, I don't know everybody in your background, but have you ever sat under false teaching? Have you ever sat under spiritual bullies who manipulate? Have you even been in cultish organizations? False teachers seek to focus people upon law, works, ritual, effort, ceremony, observances, sacrifice, rules and regulations. A true minister of God seeks to focus people on God himself, his love, honor, and praise, and upon the fact that God himself has provided the way for man to become acceptable to God. And that is through, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, 15 and 20, Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are as ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So sometimes we say we can't make a judgment call about people. That's not at all what God said. It's how we make judgments that he wants to correct. But we are to make judgments. And he says, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Verse 20, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So we're to be wise. Finally, in verses 19 and 20, we see Paul's perplexity. You know, he's still expressing frustration over their condition. And he's perplexed. Perplexed means to be in doubt, to be in a situation that's difficult to understand. And so he says in verse 19, my little children. Now, hey, look, he's, he's expressing his pastoral affection. What a kind address. That's not something we use today in our language. You know, I'm not going to stand up here and call you, hey, my little children. Good morning, little children. <laughs> uh, we have children's church for that. But he is expressing his pastoral affection to them as a teacher toward his disciples. He says, for whom I labor in birth again, again, having to give, you, give birth to you in Christ again, until Christ is now formed in you. You can see why he's perplexed. He's using an illustration of his work and the desired outcome for them to, be, to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, to know Jesus with the true gospel, not the false gospel. And he's expressing their current strained relationship. He says, I labor in birth. That's the f- I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you what that is, and I, really Paul couldn't tell you what that is uh, in, in actuality, but it's to feel the pains of childbirth, to travail. He says, I do that again. He has a renewed effort because he's not giving up on them. He refuses to give up on them. He says, I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul is striving with intensity and effort to see them return to their first love, and that's Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So he's talking about to be conformed into the image of his Son. You and I 
He desires, the idea is that we are conformed into the image of Jesus. And then he goes into verse 20 and he says, now I would like to be present with you now and change my tone. I, I wish I didn't have to say these things to you. I wish I didn't have to come across with that tone of authority. He's frustrated over the limitations of letter writing. He wants some FaceTime with his church. And we see the same thing. As good as our smartphones are and as convenient as it is to um, do email and texts, sometimes it just doesn't cut it, does it? Sometimes, you know, we just, we just need to spend time together talking to one another in fellowship. He says, I would like to change my tone, but I have doubts about you. I'm perplexed about you. I, I know not how to deal with you and in what style to address you. I'm not sure how to, you know, he, he, Paul is literally expressing his frustration to the point he's, I'm not sure what I need to say to you folks. I wish I were there to say it. Paul cannot understand how people whom he had taught the gospel and who genuinely believed it could now be turning back to the weak and beggarly elements of the law we talked about. He agonizes over their growth. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 13, 17, speaking on behalf of the Lord as prophets do, he says, but if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Finally today, Paul, we, we say he, we notice he is not done with his work with the Galatians. He, he is going to work to win them back. But the truth hurts. But he knew that the only way to free them from their bondage is by the truth. John 8, 32, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We're all a work in progress. But in order for you and I to grow in the Lord, it has to be his work in us. And he does that through those who bring his truth to bear into our lives. Sometimes the truth is the last thing that you and I want to hear. Especially when it exposes our spiritual weakness and deficiencies. Many of us have been around long enough, though, to appreciate true wisdom. Because we know that truth can help us to face our weaknesses and to trust in you know Christ's change in our life, how to change our lives. Sometimes you say, well, what kind of ministry do you have here? What's your church's emphasis here in, at Calvary Chapel? One of the ex, uh, expressions of our ministry, emphasis of our ministry, is what we call an Ephesians 4 ministry. We're a teaching church, we're Ephesians 4 ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, it says here that God gave himself, or he himself, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So the teachers are to teach the church 
so that they can be equipped to do the ministry, the work of Christ, and for the edifying of the body of Christ to be built up and strengthened in your faith. Verse 13, how, do, how long do we do that? You know, until Jesus comes and says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. That's the path we're on as we go through the Bible, as we teach the Word of God. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Jesus Christ. From all, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Again, that's something we do together. What everyone brings in and supplies, the giftings that you have. According to the effective working by which every part does its share. And causes the growth of the body for the edification of itself in love. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time today. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it will bring strength to our walk, a deeper understanding, but not just for understanding's sake, that the resultant fruit of the work and the life that we share in you will bring glory to you, honor and praise. Speak to our hearts, Lord, again throughout this week. We ask, Lord, that you go before us, go before those who are suffering and sick, the families who could not be present today. And Lord, if you're willing and you're, you're Terry, uh, we look forward to our time together again next Sunday. Until that time, Lord, we ask that you would go before us and protect us and guide us by your word, by your strength, and by the filling of the Holy Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said. Let's stand for our final prayer, our final scripture together. <clears throat> Number 624 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless. <laughs>